Hello, welcome to True Crime Time, the podcast where we talk about morbid yet fascinating things. I'm Megan, here in my apartment with my audience of two cats. Um, They love when I tell them stories, which is not true. I just lied to you. They don't care. Um, So before we get into today's case, a couple of exciting things. I just got my hands on I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Um, It was a late Christmas gift. Totally worth it. Really excited about it. Um, I think a lot of people have read it already, but I've heard really great things about it. Um, And I'm sure I'll be updating about that in the future. Also, this last weekend, I went to Behind the Staircase of Making a Murderer, which is a live event where the lawyers behind the cases kind of give you a behind-the-scenes look at at the cases. Um, They talk about issues that have to do with our judicial system, the legal system, the field of forensics, and... I have a lot of thoughts about it. Owl theory, anybody? Do you guys do you guys really believe that? I think it's such nonsense. I don't I wanna save getting into that for an an episode about the staircase, but there are so many things that if someone thinks that that theory is true, they just don't make sense if you look at the other evidence. But I digress. Um Also, I'm sure a lot of you guys listen to My Favorite Murder, which is so far my favorite podcast. Um, But listening to them over time has really made me own that true crime is something I'm passionate about. It's something I've always been passionate about. Um, It is kind of taboo in that maybe people think you're weird if you talk about it. Um, That's becoming less and less. But... Really, the thing is, it just made me more confident knowing that there's this community, um, made me more confident about sharing my interests with others. And I'm sure a lot of you have felt the same way. But with that in mind, I recently shared with a coworker that I started a podcast about true crime, and it's not her thing at all. Uh, but something really cool happened when I told her that. She told me that the Nike slogan, Just Do It, was actually based on a killer's last words before he was executed. I looked it up and sure enough, the slogan was based on Gary Gilmore's last words, let's do it, which is bizarre, but so interesting and not something that I had known before. So I guess what I'm getting at is be you, let people know who that is. You'll be surprised what you just learned from sharing. So... Let's get into our case. Ed Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer, is currently serving out eight life sentences in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. I don't know how to say that. I'm sorry. Um, I just think of cows in Spanish. Vacaville? Vacaville? Okay. Um, so Vacaville, sorry, California, one more time. Um, For what? To put it simply, murder. He had 10 victims, 99% of which were women. But to be able to even begin to understand 
his depravity, we have to start at the beginning and go chronologically because this is a whole other level of fucked up. This is not for the faint of heart. It will be disgusting. There will be cursing. Sorry, mom. Ed Kemper was born in Burbank, California on December 18th, 1948. His mother, Clarnell, Clarnell, let's say Clarnell, and his father, Ed, had a contentious marriage to say the least. To give an idea, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her was an actual thing that he said. Young Ed was the middle child and the only boy. Um, so he had two sisters. I've heard it said that he would behead and cut off the hands of his sister's dolls when he was young. But as Ed himself tells it, that was more of a sibling spat where he was getting even with his sister for breaking his toy first. But do we believe him? That's the question. Um, as a child, he did abuse animals where I won't get into the details and I want to try to keep it vague. He beheaded an animal and stuck its head on a stick. He killed two of the family pets in just truly horrible ways. If you want those gory details, feel free to look into it, but I'm not about animal torture. Um, he also once recalled that he would sneak out of his house as a second grader armed with his dad's bayonet to stand outside his teacher's window and watch her as a second grader. So that is fucking problematic. It's been stated in many articles and interviews that some of his favorite games, again, as a child, were gas chamber and electric chair, which I'm sorry, that's terrible, but that's so funny in a twisted way. Like, imagine in school, he's like, hey, Tommy, want to come over and play electric chair? Like, how do you think that's a fun thing to play? Apparently, he also had a few near-death experiences when one of his sisters pushed him into a pool and he almost drowned. Another time, she attempted to push him in front of a train. Um, but honestly, at the Kemper household, could that have been playing? Maybe it wasn't malicious, but I can't imagine how that's not. So Ed's parents separated in 1957. That upset Ed a lot because he was very close with his father. Ed and his sisters moved with their mother to Montana. According to reports, she was a neurotic alcoholic who would just constantly belittle, abuse, and humiliate Ed. Um, Clarnell actually made him sleep in the cold basement from eight years of age and up. She apparently was afraid that he would sexually assault his sisters, but it's also kind of apparent that she may have just hated him, honestly. I'm curious as to whether her fear of him sexually assaulting them was valid. Did she just, you know, did she have a reason to, th to think that would happen? Was she just an asshole? We'll never know. She made fun of him for his size. He was about 6'4 by the time, uh, time. He was 18. And she just frequently told him he was weird. He wasn't good enough. Nobody would ever love him. You know, the good stuff that your mom says. Uh, so in early life, Ed Kemper is basically 
Cinderella with a little bit of morbid twist. Um, it was around the age of 18 that he went away from home and to Van Nuys, California to find his dad, whom he missed. Um, when he found him, they had a decent relationship, but the dad had a new family, a wife and stepson, and their relationship with Ed was a little contentious. So Ed was shipped off again, feeling rejected, I'm sure, to live with his grandparents who had a ranch in North Fork. Uh, things went okay for a little while, and then as Ed puts it, his domineering grandma started to play mind games with him and frequently emasculate both him and his grandpa. One day, while Ed's grandfather was out at the store, Ed and his grandma had an argument. Enraged, he fatally shot her. Uh, according to sourced, sources, Ed, who loved his grandpa, became upset at the thought that his grandpa would have to find his wife's dead body and thought it would give him a heart attack, and so he did what any logical, rational person would do and shot him upon his return home to, quote, spare him the pain. Ed was unsure about how to proceed at this point, having committed a double murder and called his mom, as you do when you do things like that. Usually I call mine to ask about, like, the oven, how does it work, but okay. His mom told him to call the police, and he did. Then he waited for them to take him away. According to Wikipedia, Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and court psychiatrists diagnosed him as having paranoid schizophrenia before sending him to a Tescadero State Hospital that is essentially a max security facility for the criminally insane. At a Tescadero, psychiatrists and social workers did not agree with his diagnosis. It's been said in reports that Ed showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusion or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. Although I personally think killing your grandpa to spare him from the pain of finding his wife's dead body after you killed her may qualify as, you know, some weird ideas, maybe some bizarre thinking, but whatever. Um, they re-diagnosed him and said he had something that they classified as a personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type. As many would say, Ed was a likable guy. He was talkative. He was friendly. He was very intelligent, and he had a high IQ. He was a model prisoner and was actually trained to give psychiatric tests to other inmates. While he was in Atascadero, he also joined the JCs, just like our boy Jelman Gacy, which is basically a leadership training and civic organization. They're usually involved in like community service, um, things like that. Ed would later state that because he knew how these tests functioned, that he was able to, or he was trained to give the other inmates, he was able to manipulate psychiatrists because he knew what they wanted to hear. Uh, for some reason, Ed was released from Atascadero in 1969, but against the advice of psychiatrists, he was released into the care of good old mom, Clarnell. She had already remarried and divorced by the time he got out. I believe he was in there for about five years, so that's good. 
uh, for some reason or for some other reason, because they thought they had cured him, they decided to expunge his record of murder, which is probably never a good idea. Uh, at this time, Ed's out. He's back in the back in the community. He goes to community college. He actually hopes to become a police officer, but he actually exceeded the height limit and was ineligible. So at this point, he's six nine. So he's a real big guy. Um, despite this fact not his height, the fact that he was ineligible for the police force. He loved to hang out with police officers and did that a lot at their local watering hole called the jury room. And they kind of viewed him as like a friendly nuisance. He was a big talker, friendly. He loved hearing their stories. Uh, He worked a bunch of crappy jobs, but finally got a job with the highway department. And... While all of this was going on, his relationship with his mom, of course, remained toxic. She was just a straight-up asshole. There was a quote he said later reflecting on this time. Um, quote, my mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things, end quote. Let's just remember the part about what he couldn't stand while we forge ahead. So Ed is in college. He gets a girlfriend. She's 16. He gets hit by a car. He gets a settlement. He buys his own car. He's in and out of his mom's house because he has money troubles. He does have a roommate in an apartment. Sometimes. Um, This is where the shit really starts to hit the fan again. He notices that young young women hitchhiking in and around his area is a thing. He starts carrying things in his car like blankets, bags, knives, and handcuffs. That's a great sign. He starts picking up hitchhikers and letting them go until such a time where he feels his sexual homicidal urges kick in. He called these urges, quote, little zapples, which sounds like a fucking Muppet, if you ask me. Um, That's a really weird, innocent sounding thing to call something so horrible. Right? Am I alone on that? On May 7th, 1972, Ed picked up two 18-year-old students from Fresno State, Anita Marie Luchessa and Mary Ann Pesci, He was supposed to drive them to another university, but was able to somehow divert from that path without them noticing and took the girls to a secluded area. Uh, His initial thought was to rape them, but from his extended stay with the criminally insane at a Tescadero, he remembered it was important to not leave witnesses. He locked Luchessa in the trunk and strangled and stabbed Marianne in the car before killing Luchessa in the same manner. He put both their bodies in the trunk. Aside from this being a horrible tragedy, truly, he was stopped for a tailwait late, excuse me, on the way home, with the bodies in his trunk, but the officer didn't pick up on anything strange, so he got to continue along on his disgusting way. Uh, his roomie isn't home. He goes there and takes pictures of the corpses, 
he has sex with them and then dismembers them. Uh, the body parts went into plastic bags and were discarded near Loma Pita, Pita Mountain. Um, and listen, like I know this is rough, but stick with me. We got some stuff to get through here. He keeps their heads. He has oral sex with them and then disposes of them in a ravine. His next victim is Aiko Ku on September 14th, 1972. She missed her bus and decided to hitchhike in order to get to uh, to dance class. She was only 15 years old. So his MO is basically the same throughout this case. So I'm not going to do the details of each one because it's just driving home the same fucking awful strangling, dismemberment, sex with corpses. That's what's ongoing here. Um... Cindy Shaw is next on January 7th, 1973. Same MO, but he kept her body hidden in a closet overnight. He was back at his mother's at this point. Um, He had sex with the body the next morning, dismembered it. This head he kept for several days. Um, He had oral sex with it several times before he buried it in the garden, facing upwards towards his mother's bedroom. When recounting the story later, he would say, quote, my mother always wanted people to look up to her, end quote, which like, come on, really? That's the thing that you say? Ugh. He discarded the rest of her body by throwing it off a cliff. Um, on February 5th, 1973, so these are getting closer together now, there was Rosalind Thorpe, and Allison Liu. Um, so the understand police are finding, well, not police, but people are finding all these body, uh, body parts all over and the cases seem to be linked. So the authorities are pretty sure there's a serial killer on the loose. Students were advised to get into cars with university stickers on them and only those, but Ed had a sticker because his mother worked at the university. I watched an interview where he talked about the time, this particular time, and how it was much more difficult, poor Ed, to pick people up and how he had to pretend that he was a normal guy and he would pull up and kind of check his watch like, oh, do I have time to do this? To try to like disarm people um, and make them feel comfortable about getting into his car, which is disgusting. He shot them both with a 22 caliber rifle. Sorry, got handgun. Wow. And wrapped them in a blanket. He brought them back to mom's, but dismembered their bodies right in the car, which is another escalation. Uh, I should also mention he, whenever he shot his victims, he would remove the bullets in an effort to keep them from being identified. He made a truly ghastly statement about why he kept the heads and why he had sex with them after. He said it was like a trophy and, quote, without the head, the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Like what? Really? This is just 
completely on another level. On April 20th, 1973, Mommy Dearest Clarinelle comes home from a party. According to Ed, she is bombed. She's sitting in bed, reading a book, and Ed enters the room. I personally picture this like this. She has her book in her hand. She barely glances up when he comes in, and almost in like a disdainful tone, she says, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night now. The quote is true. The rest is just what I see in my head. He says, no, good night, and leaves the room. But he comes back after she falls asleep, and he comes back with a claw hammer. He bludgeons her with it. He slits her throat. He decapitates her. He has oral sex with his mother's head. He used her head as a dartboard. He put it on the mantle and screamed at it for hours. By his own admission, smashed her face in, cut out her tongue and larynx, and tried to destroy them in the garbage disposal because he was so sick of her fucking screaming at him for his entire life. Then, he had intercourse with his mother's headless corpse, put it in a closet, and went out to drink, as one does. He called his mother's friend to come over for dinner uh, the next night, and he killed her too. I read that he thought she was likely to discover the scene, and... In an effort to avoid that, he just thought he should kill her. He handled that like he handled most of his other victims. Um, The dartboard and the screaming were just special for mom, I guess. He put her in a closet too, left a note for the police, and got the hell out of Dodge. Uh, He started driving to Colorado, but was listening for news of the crime on the radio. He didn't hear anything. So he called the police and confessed to murdering his mother and her friend, but they didn't believe him and told him to call back later, which he did. He called back and asked for an officer he knew and confessed again. He waited for the police and went with them peacefully. That was when he confessed to the murder of the six students as well. Um, Ed tried to commit suicide in custody twice. His trial went ahead October 23rd, 1973. He was found to be legally sane. On November 8th, 1973, the jury declared him sane and guilty on all counts. Ed asked for the death penalty, um, death by torture in specific. But there was a moratorium on the death penalty at this point particular time so instead what he got was seven years to life for each count so each kind of murder and these terms were to be served concurrently he was sentenced to the california medical facility where he still resides today Ed is considered a model prisoner and has at times even been in charge of scheduling other inmates appointments with psych doctors he apparently was really good at making ceramic cups because I guess you need a hobby in prison or his mental facility and he's also recorded over 5,000 hours of books on tape for the blind 
he was retired from all these positions, not the cup making. Uh, In 2015, after suffering a stroke, you guys might also recognize him or his story from Mindhunter, which was based on real-life interviews with agents um, from the FBI who learned from him how serial killers' minds work and ways in which they can use that information to profile serial killers. Ed Kemper has been denied parole at every turn, but according to sources, he's perfectly happy going about his life in prison. Here's what I believe. I firmly believe that his mother had a big impact on the person that he became. Obviously, I'm not blaming her for his murders because obviously everybody is responsible for their own actions and processing their own feelings and unpacking their own shit. However, I believe that his inability to have a healthy relationship with women started right at home with mom for sure. Um, Some people are mentally ill. Some have horrible, intrusive thoughts. And both of those seem true here. But you have to wonder if with a kind, loving mother or parent, even maybe if his dad had taken him in, um, would all of this have occurred? Could he have been normal? What do you guys think? What do you think about our friend Ed Kemper here? Let me know. Come join True Crime Murderinos on Facebook where we can discuss this killer and much more. Until next time, lock your doors and windows, people.